Thanks for that nice introduction, Lauren. Thanks for the invitation, and thanks for the people who are here and the people online. Um, I'm very eager to share my new research on, on public science communications, and the title is Myth Busting or Meaning Making, and I just want to point to this infographic here uh, as an example of myth busting. Uh, it is put out by the CDC, COVID-19 vaccination, myth versus fact, and lists myths on this, screen, uh, on this column, facts on the other one. This is an example of myth-busting science communications, and I will be saying lots about that. Okay, so uh, let's start. The COVID-19 pandemic is going to be remembered as a parallel pandemic. There was the infectious disease pandemic, and there was also the infodemic. That's the truncated word for information pandemic. You probably heard that term already. It was uh, it, it uh, was used early on in the pandemic by the UN and by the WHO, and it really caught on because it's well, it's a catchy phrase. And with that catchiness, it really ascribed urgency to the problem that it was meant to identify, namely that misinformation especially health misinformation, is as deadly as the virus itself. So this presented uh, a, a challenge for science communication directed at the public, otherwise known as public science communication. What is the best way to respond to misinformation persuasively during this period of heightened fear and fast-changing new science? So public science communications, I'll, I'll define it. As I mentioned, it, it, what I'm talking about is any kind of science communications that is directed at the public. I have a title, a, a definition for you here. It is organized, explicit, and intended actions that aim to communicate scientific knowledge, methodology, processes, or practices to new, to new to non-scientists. I have some examples here of science fiction, and of course, who doesn't love uh, Mr. Wizard? Uh, the purpose of public science communications is uh, to enable public understanding of science through communicative practices. So just to flesh that out a little bit, the kind of activities that we have in mind when we talk about communi science communications to the public are quite varied. There are uh, public lectures, there are social media campaigns, museum exhibits, it includes science festivals, science journalism, public deliberation, science fiction, movies, and more. Uh, there's so much of this in the past few decades that science communication studies has grown into a discipline in its own right. Uh, they've got conferences, they've got their own journals, there are many postgraduate programs, and uh, it is all interdisciplinary research into science communications, and it draws from, it's interdisciplinary in that it draws from um, STS, or science and technology studies, as well as media and communication studies and um, uh, museum studies as well. So the field of science communications is interesting in itself. They do interesting empirical and theoretical work. For example, they create science activities like uh, a science fair, for example, and then they do the social science research into what made it work, how did people respond to it, and that kind of thing. And they also do a fair bit of theoretical work, uh, which, which we'll be discussing a little bit later. Um, one thing that it does that really interests me, I think as a philosopher, what I find most interesting about it 
is the discipline, the field is actually quite self-reflective about what it does and what it thinks it's doing. I compare it to, let's say, philosophy. We don't do that much reflection on what do we think we're doing when we do philosophy. So they ask the question, science communications researchers ask the question, um, which science communications activities improve public understanding of science? And of course, why does it improve it or not improve it? And in order to answer that question, you need to reflect on a variety of underlying more philosophical questions. Questions like, uh, what is the nature of communication? Uh, what are the aims of science communication? And what are the measures of its success? Also, what when we are doing public understanding of science, what do we mean by the public? What do we mean by understanding? And what do we mean by science? And now this gets me to that title that you might have been wondering about, myth-busting versus meaning-making. Uh, these are um, two approaches. At the same time, they are conceptualizations of what science communications is, and they're also approaches to doing it. Uh, and I'm going to be doing a contrast of the two in this, in this talk. So you'll remember science communications enables public understanding of science through communication. That's what science communications does. Myth-busting and meaning-making operationalize this effort differently. They Each approach is uh, supported by competing theories of communications and also competing conceptualizations of the public, of understanding, and of, uh, and of science. So myth-busting, I know you've seen this before, not only because I showed it to you on the first slide, but it is ubiquitous. It is all over the internet. Uh, advertisements on the subway and the buses, you see that kind of myth versus fact set up. Uh, this one, the one that I showed you on the cover, this is just a sliver of it, was COVID, vaccination, myth versus facts. Its effort, it, it is clearing up confusion with reliable facts. And then they do this tidy ordering of myths they put down in one column, facts, in the next column. So it'll say something like on the left screen myth, I've already had COVID, I don't need a vaccine. Fact, getting a COVID-19 vaccine is the best protection against getting COVID-19, even if you have already had uh, COVID. So that's an example uh, that really characterizes uh, myth busting because there are many of them and they all look like that. Uh, meaning making, science communications as meaning making is a little more obscure so to make sense of that, to show you what I mean by that, I'm going to have to do a little bit of contrasting between the two. It makes sense in contrast to, to myth-busting is what I mean. Now, this, this term meaning-making, uh, this approach to science communications, is attributable to the influential communications research of John Dewey. Uh, Dewey's work is not the focus of this talk, but I'm going to offer some broad strokes. Uh, so Dewey separates communications, all communications, into two major theories. One is the transmission view of communication, and the other one is the ritual view. I should say that this is how James Carey um, uh, articulated Dewey's later work. This is not the language of Dewey himself, but it's attributed to Dewey. Okay, so the transmission view of communication is views communication as being about knowledge dissemination and even persuasion. The ritual view 
it builds on cultural traditions and social relations in order to undertake negotiation of shared belief and meaning. So it's what people, people who, let's say, people who are, let's say, uh, make up a culture, a group, or a society come together and they negotiate their shared beliefs, their shared meanings, even their shared realities. That's a different conception of uh, communication. And just to help you keep track, I made a handy chart that we'll be filling out throughout this <laughs> talk. So you can see we've got our two approaches to science communications, myth-busting, and meaning-making. And so far, we have a sense of what is the communication theory that underlies these two approaches. Uh, myth-busting undertakes knowledge dissemination. Here are the facts. There you go. Uh, communication theory, I know it's still not entirely clear, but it is doing something like creating a society or creating a world to live within. And just to, just to add a little bit more to those ideas, of course, knowledge dissemination, that fits with that communication theory that we call the transmission view. We transmit the facts to a receptive audience, uh, while meaning-making is uh, more like the ritual view of communications, which is dialogical, uh, interactive, uh, world-building exercise. And you might have noticed, this is essential to what we're talking about today, that there is some different underlying metaphysics. If you want to get into metaphysics of communications, a myth-busting is committing to a metaphysical realism, even a scientific realism, when they say, here are the facts, there you go. Um, Meaning-making, because it is interactive and iterative, is committing to a social construction of reality. I don't see this as central to the discussion today, but it is certainly part of the uh, communications landscape that Dewey, via Carey, uh, uh, maps out. Okay, so now I'm going to be get a little more specific about myth-busting and uh, and uh, meaning making. So I've already mentioned that myth busting is very common. In fact, I think most of you have seen these kinds of images already. Um, uh, they are sometimes referred to as a myth fact message frame. So it's key, true versus false, myth versus fact, um, uh, fact versus fiction. It's that kind of division. Um, uh, it, it, it's um, uh, so uh, to draw out the characteristics of this kind of myth versus fact, you are targeting misinformation. That's what myth busting does. You target the misinformation or the myths. You provide scientific correction. That is the persuasive element that's, that's there. Where did that term come from? Well, Urban Dictionary defines myth bust as to prove to prove something that is largely believed to be true, that to prove something that is largely believed to be true to be false. It's derived from the TV show Mythbusters, which ran on the Discovery Channel from 2003 to 2016. And as you can see by this title here, uh, Mythbusters put urban myths or urban legends to the test using science. So you take something that people believe to be true, for example, a conspiracy theory, and you use science to show that it is false. That's what myth-busting is. During COVID, myth-busting as a communications practice had, was a big area of growth. It was always there, but then it became intensely available. Just giving you some examples here, just to press my point that it's ubiquitous. Uh, 
my five second search on Twitter helped me found, made me find uh, many many MythBuster accounts. I just put up four for you to see. There's Virology MythBusters, COVID nineteen MythBusters, COVID Fact Check UK, COVID nineteen vac Vaccine Fact Check uh, India. Uh, elsewhere, Johns Hopkins Medical School did a myth versus fact. Oh, sorry, I, I jumped ahead. Um, the WHO offered advice to the public in the form of myth busting. So they would uh, they would actually start with the fact: hand sanitizers can be used often. And then, if you kept reading down the screen, you'd see what is the myth? What is it that people are wrongly thinking about uh, hand sanitizers either not working or not being true? Um, the next one, uh, sorry, this is Johns Hopkins uh, Medical School. They put out a whole series of COVID-19 myth versus facts. Uh, they employed their faculty to answer the question, to provide the facts. So uh, the, the uh, language is way too small here. Uh, so I'll just tell you what's going on here. You see um, myth, the COVID-19 vaccine can affect women's fertility, followed by facts, the COVID-19 will not affect fertility. The truth is the COVID-19 vaccine encourages the body to create copies of the spike protein found on the coronavirus surface. It teaches the body's immune system to fight the virus that is specific, uh, that the specific, um, that has the specific spike protein on it. Then they go on to debunk the myth. They explain that confusion arose about uh, these vaccines causing infertility because there was some wrong information on the internet about the spike protein in uh, COVID being the same as the spike protein that uh, attaches the placenta and, uh, and creates development. That is a different spike protein and that's where the mistake uh, lies. Okay. Um, so let's unpack this science communications uh, practice. This form, this myth fact message frame, this form of communications first targets propositional claims. So it takes a claim like the flu vaccine can give me the flu, and then it corrects it. It gives you the right information that you need to know. By doing that, it invokes a number of dichotomies. I mean, myth versus fact for sure, or fact versus falsehood, but it also invites a near clear division between experts and the public, and also a division between the scientific sphere and the public sphere or the political sphere. So from here, you, uh, in, so in trying to resolve the problem of public understanding of science, uh, you start to get an image of the components. I've suggested that you have different ideas about public, about understanding and of science operating here. So you start, I think you can start to see that when Mythbusters conceptualize the public, they are thinking of, first of all, an easily manipulated group and they certainly have no knowledge Relevant, no uh, relevant knowledge or expertise to contribute to the discourse. As for understanding of the issue is clearly expert driven. Scientists know science, they have the facts. And if what is the image of science that we're conveying here in that tidy column of facts? Uh, it is facts after all, which means that the science is real, it is true, it is certain, it is even uh, value free. 
And I'll say just a little more about the popularity of this frame, which was popular before COVID, that flu vaccine one that I showed you, myth versus facts about flu vaccines uh, is from before um, COVID. I'll tell you when I was doing my research on vaccine hesitancy and I was looking at communications, I'd say 90 something percent of communications had that kind of myth, myth fact kind of uh, uh, discourse. So it is so popular, first of all, that you can find many, many templates like this one to make your own myth fact um, infographic. Uh, it's also popular because it makes sense. It seems to make sense to provide accurate information, especially when people are online looking for accurate information and finding misinformation. So it seems like a good idea. It's also easy to do. If you have a social media account, you don't need big money or like a PR account or a big following. You can just do the kind of work. In fact, some, some um, grassroots mythbusters discovered that they could they even gain some kind of celebrity during, uh, during COVID, which was, as you know, a lonely time for pretty much all of us, where if you're, especially if you're uh, willing to pick fights with science deniers and be rude about it online, you could actually get quite a following of similarly minded pro-science people who are sick of all the idiots out there, pretty much. Um, another big, uh, another thing that's helpful for uh, myth busting and I think keeps it so popular is that it is bolstered by cognitive and behavioral psychology research into misinformation. So I'm going to say a little bit about the psychology of misinformation. So this is an area of study looking specifically at belief acquisition and information processing and trying to figure out where we go wrong, where in our psychology do we go wrong. So these psychologists do um, experimental studies of all kinds of interventions to see if we can somehow minimize uptake of misinformation or minimize the impact in some ways, uh, minimize the impact on people's beliefs and, of course, in their actions. Uh, so researchers in this field have come up with a number of strategies for all kinds of interventions. There are interventions called pre-bunking, where you warn people about what you're about to see and the misinformation that you might encounter. Uh, you can do debunking, that is a reactive response, it's telling me, telling you what's wrong, the thing that you heard. And there's even one called something called inoculation against misinformation, which I think is kind of like critical thinking skills. So what to look out for uh, more in general. People who are interested in this can access these resources very easily. You can download the Debunk Handbook 2020 in uh, for free in 19 different languages. Uh, it updates the 2011 first edition, and it gives you all, it's sort of a summary of the state of the field of, uh, of the science of misinformation and debunking. It's written by 22 prominent scholars of, uh, of misinformation and debunking, um, and it's written for a broad audience. The broad audience is meant to be, you know, journalists, politicians, engaged citizens, and the like. So the information is out there and wi widely accessible. That has something to do with the excellent funding that this uh, that this field uh, relieves, uh, receives. And uh, the psychology of mi misinformation, I should say, is just one part of a broader field of study called misinformation studies. That's psychology, neuroscience, sociology, uh, media studies. And misinformation studies really exploded as an area of research after 2016, which was the year of Trump's electoral victory and Brexit, 
So because of those events, because it was characterized as a misinformation problem, and let's all agree there was a lot of misinformation out there, but because that was seen as the root cause, there's loads of interest in misinformation studies and tons and tons of funding going into this problem of misinformation. And I'm gonna come back to misinformation studies later. So that's the popularity of myth busting, but there are also problems for the field too. I'm going to highlight two of them. The first one is that the outcomes for this psychology of misinformation research uh, area, uh, research into these interventions to combat Mr. misinformation are really not impressive. At best, we get short-lived attitudinal shifts. So for example, after doing some kind of intervention, People will then, uh, will, who are the audience, are then polled, and they might admit that they are now less committed to their prior belief that COVID vaccines cause infertility. But that feeling doesn't stay when you pull them a few days or weeks later; they're back to their priors. And also, those, those, even those short-lived attitudinal shifts do not translate into behavioral change. They don't express any different intention to get the COVID vaccine now that their beliefs have been corrected. Uh, of course, intention to, to act is just the proxy for behavioral change. Even worse, some studies detect what's called a backfire effect, which is the idea that when you provide people with corrective information, they dig in their heels and actually become more committed to the misinformation that they, that they hold on to. So they might actually come out of this exercise feeling that COVID vaccines are even more dangerous than they were before. Uh, how do they explain this? Researchers hypothesize that motivated reasoning kicks in once your prior beliefs of why the vaccines, uh, why you shouldn't get vaccine, uh, vaccinated are, is shaken. So the epistemic agents will move the goalpost to find other reasons not to vaccinate. Now, I should say that the backfire effect is a contested claim. The biggest supporters of misinformation studies, which include the authors of this 2021 review, say that backfire effect has never been replicated. So they question whether that's the case. But there are, on the other side, people still insisting that it is, that it is a problem. Still, the meek outcomes, so even this review will tell you we don't get much traction in terms of changing people's beliefs and their uh, action. The meek outcomes and even the mere possibility of backfire has not slowed down this area of study. Uh, it is common to read these studies and the conclusion will be something like nothing works, but that hasn't stopped researchers from trying. There is still a whole lot of research into this. Okay, that was the first problem with the myth fact message frame. Now I want to talk about the second one. So another strike against myth busting comes from science and communication studies itself. The problem is that the underlying assumptions and values of myth busting are completely at odds with pretty much all of science and communications research into the publics. And let's not forget the mythbusters are doing science communications. So we should wonder why there's such a disconnect between the practice and the research. I think that deserves some attention. So what issue, an issue is what is called the knowledge deficit model. And that is defined in communications research as the idea that public resistance to science is due to knowledge gaps. So the knowledge deficit resides in the public and if you fill that gap with proper knowledge, then 
Um, uh, I'll read this quote, if scientists are successful in addressing gaps in public understanding of science, the public will be more likely to make decisions that are in line with the scientific consensus on a given topic. So if you fill that gap, everyone will then agree, as the scientists do, that the COVID vaccine is a thing that we should all be getting. If there's one thing science communication seems to agree on is that the knowledge deficit model is wrong. The researchers think that. Yet, that is precisely what you find in supporting the myth-busting uh, exercise. Um, I'll tell you a little more about public science communications. I thought we'd have a bigger screen, so I, I will be zooming in on this. So this tidy infographic captures, I'm going to say, a good 30 years of public understanding of science. Oh, something I should meant to mention was this journal here, this is the flagship of public science communications. It, it's a journal called Public Understanding of Science. This image is of the May 2023 issue. If you go back to the first issue, which was published in 1992, you will find articles um, disavowing the deficit model. So 31 years later, people are still saying the deficit model. They now call it a zombie theory. It's a theory that just, that just won't die. Mm -hmm. So this is how I'm going to characterize in, in a helpful image. I, I'm going to zoom in on some of it. 30 years of public understanding of science or public science communications research. Okay, You have this model called the deficit model, which is problematic. Problematic insofar as scientists know everything. They educate the public. It is one-way knowledge production and presentation. Uh, what's happened since then is many, many alternative models on the spectrum of public engagement. So I'm going to zoom in on these two, the public debate model and the co-production of knowledge model. So both of them commit to more public engagement. So you see in public debate, uh, it is bi-directional discourse. You start with scientists who are producing the knowledge. You get feedback from the public. So knowledge production at least has some public involvement. The publics are also a little more differentiated. They're not just people with big gaps in their knowledge. The co-production of knowledge model is a little uh, is, is a little bit more so engaging in that it is a collaborative exercise in knowledge production. You see, uh, you see scientists and publics equally committed to discussing, let's say, uh, policies around new technology, okay? So these are all in the terms, public engagement is the norm. This is all to say that public engagement is seen as the right way to do um, public, um, public science communications. So the kind of science, com science communications activities that would suit this kind of view wouldn't be a, uh, an infographic, it would be something more interactive I'm thinking of things like public deliberations, mini publics, or citizen juries where you get citizens together, you uh, do a little education session, and then you actually have a, a discussion about new technologies or science policies. So back to the criticisms of myth busting, the point here is that within the study or in the research of public science communications, it's really mainstream thinking to say that effective communications requires uh, initiatives that sponsor dialogue uh, and trust, uh, good relationships, and public participation. Um, these alternatives, uh, myth-busting, of course, does none of those things. Um, these alternative models are often also think about science and publics and the understanding a little bit 
differently. Uh, these models have led to questioning whether it is the job of science communicators to make the public dutifully accept what scientists tell them. Here are the facts, here you go. Most researchers in the field think public understanding of science should involve engaging the publics with imperfect science in the real world and calling it back. So you don't teach the mythology of pure capital T, truth-seeking science. Instead, you're honest about science's messiness, even its limits. You're critical of scientific elites when that is warranted, and you struggle to, to democratize science. That's kind of the view in public communications about science. So you remember that table. Now we get to fill out the rest of it in meaning-making is involves a public that are under, so first of all, we've got publics, I, public, I uh, pluralized it, they talk, the researcher will often talk about publics instead of public, because the publics are diverse in their knowledge, in their experiences, they bring to the table relevant knowledge and values, and they have what some sociologists call lay expertise. Their experiences of the world provide knowledge and expertise that are actually relevant to science policy and discussions about science. Understanding then is co-constituted by scientists and the public to lesser or more degrees. The dialogue one was a little bit, the co-production model was much more uh, engaged. And science, of course, are not mere facts to be reproduced. Science is messy, it is fallible, it is contested, but not relative. It is also uh, value-laden. So this is getting us a better understanding of uh, of meaning making, what we mean by that. And uh, this ties to this idea of communications as, as, uh, as world making. But before I do that, I just want to clarify, I keep saying that myth, myth busting is grounded in the deficit model. So here is from that same image, uh, what the deficit model, how it is uh, characterized and uh, the image here, you've got, uh, it's sometimes called the public education model, not a very progressive idea of education where teacher teaches students who are kind of open vessels and they just receive knowledge. Uh, so that makes it a unidirectional discourse. The publics are undifferentiated and of course they have nothing to contribute uh, to, to the exchange. And, um, um, I, and this, of course, is an example of myth-busting during COVID, but I, uh, I have said, but I'll say again, that it was already the norm before COVID-2, at least around vaccine communications. In my own research, I mentioned uh, most of the vaccine communications, this is the kind of billboard you might see on a bus or something like that, looks something like this. This one is from UNICEF. Uh, it was printed in 2019. Vaccines myths debunk, so the language of debunk is used there. And you see the, the myth, vaccines are unsafe, are there. And of course you can't see it because it's tiny writing and, and, and light green against white background, but it tells you the truth. It, it, uh, it uh, corrects you on, on the myth. So it is kind of interesting. I always come back to this, uh, just a, a few comments on this, um, on this uh, image is that even this is not just that it is myth busting research, but they don't even follow the recommendations of the myth busters, which there's a, always a concern in myth busting that you might be amplifying the misinformation by repeating it. So when you make a poster, you don't want to put the misinformation in big dark letters while the truth is barely uh, readable. Another interesting thing about it is, uh, I only noticed this maybe the fifth or sixth time I looked at it, is again in tiny writing, they write, 
want to see better policies, tell us. And they give you a SurveyMonkey uh, link where you can tell us what you think. And that, of course, is actually inconsistent with the, uh, with, um, the deficit model because who cares what the undifferentiated, stupid public thinks? Why would you even ask for that? So anyway, but just, a, just a side comment on that. Okay, I've just told you that myth-busting is not consistent with the literature. I've also told you that the deficit bottle is completely out of fashion. So here's the question you might be wondering, why does it persist? Um, um, uh, well, the answer to this, I'm actually going to, the question has been asked for some time and I'm just going to let communication scholars, so Nisbet and Schofel are two well-known uh, communication scholars, and they wrote about this. They asked that question back in 2009, and it's as if they had Mythbusters in mind when they said this. I'm just going to read this quote. Yet despite notable, noticeable, yet despite notable new directions in science communications research, many communication efforts continue to be based on ad hoc, intuition-driven approaches, paying little attention to several decades of interdisciplinary research on what makes for effective public engagement. Those initiatives start with the false premise that deficits in public knowledge are the central culprit, culprit drawing societal conflict over science, when in fact, science literacy has only a limited role in shaping public perceptions and decisions, okay? More recently, this is Schofel again with other colleagues writing in, in 2021, they actually identified who are the culprits, who keeps myth-busting going, and who keeps the deficit model central. And it is STEM scientists, practicing STEM scientists. They write, even though knowledge deficit models have long been proven to be at odds with the best available communication science, they continue to underline many efforts, especially among STEM scientists, to communicate with uh, the public. Uh, other commentators, uh, communications, sorry, communications researchers, this is a, a I'm going to tell you a little bit about some work by Puyo and God, and God Bo. Um, but they, they add to this, they agree that it is often practicing scientists that are engaging in the myth busting and keeping the deficit model alive. And they say that they reproduce the deficit model because that's really how many scientists think about the public. So they explain, uh, this, this quote is from a 2014 editorial written for the European Molecular Biology Organization, and it's called Thinking Outside the Knowledge Deficit Box. And in it, these communication scholars um, explain, or, or I think are sympathetic, that practicing scientists, like their readership, often find it difficult to shift away from, from deficit model thinking. They recognize that scientists are being increasingly called to contribute their expertise to policy discussions, to deal with emergency situations, to engage in public debates, and that these efforts don't go well, or often don't go well. And they attribute those difficulties to deficit model thinking among scientists. And here's, here's the quote, there's a tendency in the scientific community to think that citizens suffer from a deficit of knowledge and are incapable of grasping the complexity of science. As such, scientists believe that the public are in need of education. Such attitudes implemented in the so-called knowledge deficit model of science communication, figure one, this actually is figure one, prevail despite sociological studies that have been demonstrated 
that citizens are able to understand both the complexity of research and the uncertainties accompanying many technological and scientific developments. In the end of that editorial, they recommend that practicing scientists get more familiar with uh, researchers in science and technology studies and in public science communications. They think it would help scientists, whether they are academic or working in industry, to become better attuned to the current needs of society and that it would benefit them professionally. Okay, so let's return to the problem of misinformation that is cross-cutting the COVID pandemic period. Concerns about the infodemic, which is where I started, seem to replicate many assumptions of the knowledge deficit model. Uh, if citizens only had the correct information, they would make better decisions. That certainly seems to be the view of Neil deGrasse Tyson, probably the, the best known English language science communicator out there who wrote, who said this, at least uh, captured in a headline, misconceptions about science fuel pandemic debates and controversies, says Neil deGrasse Tyson. He was on CBC where he said that, and I listened to the audio. He, he didn't actually say that or something along those lines. So this is a characterization. This is what is, uh, seems to be the commonality here is that you take all the conflict, let's say throughout the COVID pandemic and say, surely it is a misinformation uh, problem. And this is not a new view either. This is uh, DeGrasse Tyson five years earlier said pretty much the same thing. Five years ago, he was on, uh, on an Australian news show Q&A talking about science policy controversies. Specifically, he was talking about parents who don't vaccinate their kids. And he said, science illiteracy is a tragedy of our times. So we used to call it science illiteracy until, until, um, um, the, until misinformation studies kind of changed the term. We, we talked about science illiteracy. Now we talk about misinformation. But what persists is this idea that if only we had the right information, all this controversy uh, would, would disappear. Now, this pressing question, why do people resist science is a well-traversed interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary research area in STS, in communications, psychology, neuroscience, philosophy of science and ethics. And of course, I've already suggested the most popular answer to this question is because misinformation. And I dove into this question myself when I was researching vaccine hesitancy. That's where I became familiar with science communications scholarship and, and came to admire it. And it actually didn't take me very long to reject this explanation that science illiteracy is the problem, that it's a problem of misinformation. To get a more thorough answer to this question, you need a better understanding of the cultural meanings and significance tied to this health technology. And this, I take this from my own work, is uh, thinking about vaccines. Vaccines need to be appreciated and also understood, not just as a technology, but insofar as they are imbued with outside symbolism. There is so much meaning attached to vaccines, which is why we can't stop talking about them. On the one hand, they invoke uh, ideas about hope and scientific marvel, but in the same breath, they can also inspire fear and resistance. Uh, they give us um, comforting notions of community and solidarity, all of us coming together, but they also invoke ideas about political repression and medical tyranny. Vaccines are sufficiently infused with meanings, with cultural stories, with histories, 
that that vaccine hesitancy cannot be reduced to a single cause explanation. Something like misinformation is just not going to capture it. Uh, in my own work, this is a quote from my book, and this is early on, this wasn't my conclusion. I said this about uh, vaccines. I wrote, vaccine debates are about much more than vaccines. Instead, capturing a cluster of temporally, geographically, and historically specific concerns. In liberal democratic societies, those concerns include how technology shapes our lives, who decides and who regulates technological intrusions on our lives, knowledge and power, science for the people versus uh, science for corporate interests, concerns about uh, government overreach, individual liberty, globalization, multiculturalism, pluralism, community cohesion, health disparities, income inequality, and I could have gone on. All that is tied into these little vaccines. Um, if this quote is right, then it shouldn't be surprising that the myth-fact framework doesn't work because that frame silences all of these considerations. It prefers instead that singular attribution of misinformation as the problem and facts of the solution, and therefore there's no room for all that other stuff, all those other concerns. Okay, now I wanna say a little bit about misinformation studies. There are criticisms of misinformation studies. I can't get into them uh, properly because there's so much else to talk about, but I'm just gonna give you some quick criticisms of misinformation studies, including psychology. One is that the fast pace and also the furious funding have shaped a haphazard discourse a discourse that is uh, overuses unthoughtful jargon, things like, you've heard these all, I'm sure, post-truth, post-fact society, truth decay, information warfare, and of course the infodemic. There's a lot of um, uh, catchy terms like that. Okay, these terms, of course, press the urgency of the misinformation problem, and hence the need for more funding, so it works in that way. But it also taints the discourse. These unthoughtful uh, phrases seem to seep into every element of ensuing discussion. How we tell the story of online information informs the arguments, it frames the research, and it shapes the responses that we have. So I'm just going to focus on my least favorite trope, which is post-truth. And the problem with post-truth is that it encourages a pursuit of a fictional prior time of truth. So if we're in the post-truth moment, there must have been a time of truth. A time when we had healthy informational ecosystems that were governed by the legacy media. I mean the old media, like the newspapers and media conglomerates, okay? The time before social media, which uh, threw everything off. That is the common thinking around post-truth. Um, um, yet the data to support this idea that we live in uniquely misinformed times is actually quite sketchy. Uh, the historical record shows that well-funded campaigns of disinformation are nothing new. We used to call them propaganda. Now we call them fake news. And just to complicate things, those propaganda campaigns were sometimes came from government leadership, not from fringe groups. And those campaigns were supported by the legacy media rather than corrected by them uh, during wartime, for example. Um, the author Tim Huang argues that the wave of public attention and funding towards issues, misinformation issues after 2016 should be seen as reflecting near-term political anxieties and not a fundamental shift 
in the truth or the public relationship, the public's relationship to it. As for this last part, legacy media stabilizing truth, this is equally unlikely. Uh, media studies routinely challenges many problematic narratives advanced by con media conglomerates. Uh, for example, um, the media conglomerates have long been criticized for enabling white supremacy in how they misconstrue black violence and crime compared to white violence and crime in the US and for constructing um, racist tropes like the welfare queen. In fact, we have a black press that presents alternative perspectives to white dominant media, uh, covers stories that the white press doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, cover and counters racist depictions. This is all to say that we shouldn't be waxing nostalgic for the pre-social media informational ecosystem because it wasn't very healthy. We've never had that. So some of the critics of misinformation studies, they demand that any study of misinformation and disinformation need to put considerations of power in the forefront. They're demanding a politics of knowledge. Whose interests do misinformation, uh, do misinformation and its correctives serve? Who gets the epistemic privilege of knowing the truth? So I agree with all of these criticisms, and I just want to add a new one. It's this one. I, uh, you've heard this before. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, that old adage is attributed to Abraham Maslow. He's a psychologist who wrote critically about Freudian psychology in 1966, and he said something along these lines. So I've come to start thinking about misinformation studies as a hammer that sees all social conflict as a nail. It's always misinformation. And I'll say a little more about everything looking like a nail. Um, acceptance of public health policies, no matter how essential that they are, depends on trust. Trust in the facts, but also trust in the institutions that produce and evaluate the evidence and weigh the trade-offs between them. So the contentious policies during COVID, the ones that inspired these kinds of protests, were all about uh, freedom of movement being impacted. So if you had to wear a mask or, a va or get a vaccine in order to enter public spaces, or if schools and businesses are closed. Of course, these were justified, as our governments told us, these were justified as efforts to restrict disease transmission and thereby avoid illness uh, and avoid overwhelmed healthcare facilities and death. So was it misinformation that prompted, as, as DeGrasse Tyson would say, was it misinformation that prompted the resistance? Sure, misinformation was there. It proliferated and resistors even often repeated the false claims. But the propositional claims were arguably red herrings. Uh, it was the framing of the COVID problem that was under dispute. So the question becomes, who gets to define the problem? Who frames the COVID problem that needs to be solved? Uh, STS scholars, Hill Gardner and colleagues write, epidemiology, epidemiological measures of death averted, which of course justified school closures and such, uh, these measures of death averted don't capture other essential dimensions of life, economic, social, political, and even spiritual. Policies aimed primarily at reducing health risks are suspect to those who see other critical needs as being justifiably uh, neglected. So there are, this is all to say that there are different sets of interests and concerns that could define the COVID problem very differently. 
but certain priorities were privileged and there was no airing or grievances about that, or, or at least not very healthy ways to air those grievances. And that is because the misinformation hammer belittled alternative framings and priorities than those that came from official government sources, those that came from the highest levels of government and, uh, and scientific advisory boards. Anyone who disagreed with those priorities were called misinformed. Also, the confidence insistence on what are the facts and what are the myths, as we see in myth busting, really never matched the science. Uh, the science was emerging and uncertain given that this was a new virus. So the overstated stability of the facts had a function, a sort of a chilling function of silencing the public and best calling them misinformed. Even worse, they might be disinformed. It's people actively trying to confuse us. It also recognized political and, so, and scientific elites as the only sources of reliable information. So this is that expert versus the public uh, division or dichotomy that we saw earlier. So this thinking is for sure problematically elitist and it's also inaccurate. Uh, it also doesn't make for good communications if you don't know your audience. When people seek health information, they are not a blank slate. Uh, they come in with prior knowledge, prior experiences of healthcare, specific concerns and attitudes. So this didactic model, this deficit model of teacher and open-minded, let's say slack-jaw pupil that the deficit model encourages um, does not describe the publics that you are trying to engage with. It just doesn't make for good communications. Okay, so what I just did was a science communication study of the meanings tied to the misinformation narrative and myth-busting activities. I called, it, I called it unpacking earlier, but it's really an exercise in understanding the meanings that are being conveyed by the communicators, whether it's implicit, it's, whether intended or, or just implicit. Also, I'm, I'm raising concerns about the meanings that the audience might draw from those communications. They don't always match. So myth-busters are conveying a highly rational world of defined facts and equally defined fiction. Um, and also a sharp division between expert knowledge, which is always trustworthy, and non-expert knowledge, which is always confused. Now, the recipients of this messaging may not buy it. They might draw different meanings from this myth-busting communications. If the Twitter fights that I saw tell me anything, many of the publics saw these communications as elitist and arrogant, or they even found it suspect and malicious insofar as they thought the communicators were hiding medical harms from us and were trying to obscure usurpation of basic liberties by our government during the pandemic. So the communication uh, theory behind science communication is meeting making um, comes, as I mentioned, from the work of Dewey. Uh, Dewey, like other in, others in the pragmatist tradition, they committed to an in, commit to an ontology where understanding the world is not about unearthing its fundamental truths, it's about experiencing it and interpreting those events. That's what they mean by understanding. Communications then are the access point to understanding, where understanding is negotiated collaboratively by actors in a culture or a society. So people in a society or a culture come together and they come to understand 
experiences and events through some kind of shared meaning. Truth then is not out there to be uh, discovered, but it is co-constituted by our collecting problem-solving efforts. Okay? And communications then cannot be one-way transactions. Instead, it is a process that forms our experiences of and relationships with each other and the material world in which we live. Now, this quick entry into uh, pragmatic pragmatism and this metaphysics of, of Dewey should suggest that communications is an exercise in meaning making, whether or not you acknowledge that everything you say is framed. You've heard of frames before, you've probably heard of the framing effect. It comes from mass communication study studies, but uh, I see it increasingly <laughs> being used in, uh, in applied ethics, for example, when we talk about ethical decision making and informed consent. This idea that the way you say it is going to limit the way your audience understands it and the kind of options that are available to you. So I'll just give some definition. Frames are interpretive storylines that communicate what is at stake in a societal debate and why the issue matters. And frames create meetings. They direct and constrain possible understandings or interpretations and, of course, possible responses to the message. And science communication studies generally agree that it is an unavoidable part of science communication. So it's part of the meaning making is understanding what is the frame? What are the meanings that are being emphasized? What is allowable? And what, of course, is being quieted? Uh, the, here are some examples of the unavoidability of frames in science communications. When you write a grant proposal, when you author a journal article, or you provide expert testimony as a scientist, scientists emphasize certain technical details over others with the goal of maximizing persuasion and understanding across contexts. Another example, this one comes from, um, that was from Hillgardner, this is from Nelkin. Press officers and science reporters negotiate story angles that favor particular themes and narratives, or at the expense of context, define news narrowly around a single scientific study. So there is a small body of, uh, of science communications researchers that are doing this kind of work on meaning making. They use the term culture, but I think we're all friends here and we're talking about the same thing. So I'd like to acknowledge this idea of science communications as culture that, are, that, are, that is being promoted by a few communications theorists. So usually these theorists start with a very famous quote by Clifford Geertz, an anthropologist who wrote uh, in 1973, a book called An Interpretation of Culture. Uh, so this is how he defined culture, believing uh, with Max Weber that man is an animal suspended in webs of significance. He himself has spun. I take culture to be those webs and the analysis of it to be therefore not an experimental science in search of law, but an interpretive one in search of deep meaning. So by culture, they mean the webs of significance and the meanings that we ascribe to events upon our reflection and, and interpretation of primary experience. It is how actors make sense of their shared world, which is to say, we do it, uh, we do it together. Um, so, um, so science communications as meeting making 
uh, will investigate the meanings that are made and reinforced in different spaces and contexts. So the act of science communications isn't about, uh, the, the, when you evaluate science communications, you're no longer asking, did the public agree with the statement that I was trying to make? Okay, do are people more, more in agreement that vaccines don't cause uh, infertility, for example? Instead, you research the meanings that come out of this exercise. What was being conveyed by the speakers? What was picked up by the uh, receivers? And where do we stand from that? So the kinds of questions that you would ask, your research questions would be something like this. What does this instance of communication mean to different actors involved in it? What wider societal norms and values does it refer to or reinforce? What broader systems of meaning making is it part of? And you can ask those questions, these are those same questions, when you study any kind of science activity. You can look at what is the receiving, uh, how does this child receive the science fiction book? What is the audience response to movies? Even what is the audience response to an infographic, a, a myth versus fact infographic? These are the questions that you want to ask. Um, Okay, this is, okay, just ending uh, here, I'm gonna wrap it up. So because engaging in meaning making is trying to find shared understanding and acceptable practices, both in science in policy and even how we talk to each other, these efforts, if it's done well, might even resist the polarizing public response to science policy that we've seen over the years. We've seen it about climate change. We've seen it about any pandemic response uh, and even the status of public health as a whole is now being polarized in this way. Problematic to that discourse is also, we might, sorry, to add to that, it also might help us understand science a little bit di different. Science now is now becoming an ideological weapon. You either believe in science or love it if you're on the political left, or you do some kind of denying of it if you're on the right. What we don't get to do when we need to commit our allegiance to science or our disavowal of it is actually discuss the science itself, how it helps and how it could be uh, more helpful. So prioritizing public engagement uh, and attending to the alternative frames and meanings that shape science communications, the communication itself and the uptake of, of it by diverse publics invites a new purpose for science communication and a new measure for its success. Okay, that's it, thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.